0: The health and wealth of America is a series of conversations hosted by CDX, Techonomy, and Worth about challenges and opportunities facing our country. In this episode, James Ledbetter, Chief Content Officer of Clare Media and founder of Fin, speaks with Joseph Stiglitz, economist and Nobel laureate, on the topic of: Is the U.S. finally spending what we should? Welcome. Very honored today to be joined by uh, Joseph Stiglitz. Uh, Joe teaches economics at Columbia University. He is the former head of the Council of Economic Advisers, the former chief economist for the World Bank, uh, the recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics 20 years ago, Joe, if you can believe it, uh, and the author of many, many books, the most recent of which is Measuring What Counts, the Global Movement for Well-Being." Joe, welcome to the Health and Wealth of America. Nice to be here. Um, I want to uh, focus a little bit on Washington um, just because there's so much excitement and activity going on. Um, what's your assessment of the $1.9 trillion COVID stimulus program and the proposed, depending on how uh, you measure it, $2 trillion or $4 trillion infrastructure plan. You know, On their face, these seem like much stronger policy responses we got during the Obama administration to address the Great Recession. Assuming you agree with that, what do you think accounts for the change? Oh, I think
1: it's partly the failure uh, of the previous, uh, the response to the Great Recession. Um, You know, I I was involved in a lot of those discussions and many of us said back in uh, late 2008, early 2009, you need a bigger You need to do something bigger. And uh, there were uh, people in the administration, uh, uh, Christine Romer, who who agreed that it needed to be bigger. But in the end, um, a combination of uh, some economists who got it wrong and uh, political judgments that that was the most you could do at that moment, and a really bad political judgment. If we need more, we can come back and get more. <laughs> it's really the- That always works. That, that, that never happens. <laughs> and uh, so I think they've learned that lesson and said, this downturn is worse. And the thing I, really appreciate about what Biden has done has been to say, at the same time that we're uh, addressing this economic downturn and helping revive the economy, let's think about priorities and where we want to be in the future. So One of the things that's really very big in this bill is addressing the health issues that, you know, that should have been number one from the start. Uh, This is a health crisis, a pandemic, and the first thing you want to make sure is that you address the the health needs of the country. And I think it's shocking that during the Trump administration uh, more wasn't done. The second thing is protecting the most vulnerable. And uh, again, it was shocking that from June to December Nothing was done about the unemployed. Uh, you know, the original bill in the spring, the CARES Act, anticipated it would be a short downturn. I thought <laughs> that was wrong. Anybody who understood epi- epidemiology sort of thought that was a could happen, but not likely to happen. So, uh, but the programs were designed to phase out. Uh, June, and we didn't get it in second act until December. And uh, this obviously addresses that. I would have liked to have seen um, an automatic provision, what's called an automatic stabilizer that the unemployment insurance would continue so long as the unemployment rate remained elevated. Uh, Most economists would say that was what we needed, but it's still so much better than what we had before. And the third thing is a real problem facing America that was both exposed by the economic, by the pandemic, but also aggravated was our great inequalities. And it is really, truly amazing that um, um, colleagues here at Columbia estimated that the childhood poverty rate will be reduced by 40 percent as a result of this one bill. So, you know, it, this is a, a a real achievement you might say uh, echoing the great, uh, the new deal that you you're really trying to to change the face of uh, address some of the long standing problems the country faces.
0: There there are several remarkable things in in your response and I just want to kind of underscore them. One is that uh, economists and politicians can actually learn from the recent past. That has not always been an obvious proposition to say the least. The second is, I wonder, I, I mean, are, you, you just made a comparison to the New Deal, which is a pretty uh, pretty big cudgel to, to, to bang down on the table. Um, I, I wonder to, to what extent you think we are really experiencing a watershed moment, a, a change, in our politics and our political embrace of government spending, um, you know, in, in the the in the early days of the Biden administration, it really can feel like that sometimes. And yet, I wake up the next day and I look at how thin the congressional margins are, uh, both in the House and in the Senate. Um, do you think the politics around government spending have really been altered and altered permanently?
1: So first, let me say that uh, the division in the House and the Senate does not reflect the division in America. If you look at opinion polls, if you look at the actual voting in the polls, what you see is something like 60% of Americans, and the opinion polls, something more like 70 to 80%, support an agenda that includes increasing minimum wages, tighter financial regulations, um more infrastructure and in, that on inf- more infrastructure is well over 75 uh, percent uh, uh, even in the corporate community um, gun control, climate change and then, you look then among the young people who have the most stake in America again the numbers are just overwhelming uh, addressing a problem of inequality, racial inequality, social injustices. So I would say, looking at the country as a whole, there's not, there's a remarkable degree of consensus. It's still divided, it's not like 95 and five, we have to be open about the fact that that there are disagreements, but it's nothing like the division in Congress. Then you have to ask the question, politics is, uh, you have to deal with what is possible. And um, here, I think, again, Biden may have learned the lesson uh, from Obama. Uh, Obama, looking at the divisiveness of the previous administration, the, of the Bush administration said, let's try to act more like a community, like a uh, civilized community, and uh, let's try to bridge the gap. And he tried. I got to give him credit for that. But in the very beginning, Mitch McConnell said, uh, "I'm, I'm committed to making sure you fail. And he did everything to do that. And I think the lesson that Biden seems to have learned is: you know, I'll go a long way to going across the aisle to making common ground, but I'm not going to give up what the vast majority of Americans want. If I can get it politically feasible within the rules of the game, I'm going I'm to fight for it. And that's what he did in the rescue package. You know, um, the Republicans said, oh, not 1.9 trillion, 600 billion. And economists uh, rightly said, that's not going to get you out of this hole. And, you know, Goldman Sachs is now saying, we're going to have 8% growth this year. That's great. We're going to be the only country exceeding the forecasts that were made before the pandemic. So it looks, you know, this is not somebody inside the administration. This is, you know, sort of uh, Wall Street saying, "You're doing it. You're, you're actually doing it." So um, I think that's the right the right stance. You know, we'll compromise. We'll work with you. We'll, we'll, we'll do what we can. But there's only there are limits. To which we can compromise, and uh, uh, you know, we'll talk about right now as you mentioned the infrastructure bill. We'll talk what's in there, uh, the timing, how we're going to finance it, so forth. But in the end, I think he's committed to having an infrastructure bill, and I think he's committed to recognizing that in. The 21st century infrastructure is not just bridges and roads. It's what we call soft infrastructure: knowledge, our research institutions, education, health, uh, healthcare, uh, caring for, for you know, making a healthier and productive population. Childcare too. It's really reflecting 21st century economics.
0: Yeah. Um, you make a really good point about the popular support for stimulus and, and by most measures, I guess, infrastructure as well. I'm wondering if that suggests where the limits of, of what uh, the Biden White House can accomplish. I mean, for example, um, there seems to be a lot more opposition, not surprisingly, to the proposed increase in a corporate tax Do you think that Biden has the necessary leverage to get something like that passed? Or is that going to be one of those programs that just going to kind of fade away?
1: Well, I I, that's uh, getting inside Congress in a way that, uh, you know, I have some feelings, but I I find it uh, difficult to make a judgment. Uh, I think. Again, most Americans think that corporations should pay their fair share. The large number of our richest corporations that are paying zero taxes uh, is an outrage. Uh, and I think he's with the majority of Americans and saying, hey, we got to do something about this. Um, I, my own theoretical and research, historical research, the best econometric research, says that raising the corporate income tax will not Uh, impede investment, and not uh, put at risk jobs. The very simple reason for that is the profits tax is a tax on profits. (laughs) And it's a tax, in other words, you deduct your labor costs, you deduct your capital costs, you deduct your investment. And so while your return is reduced, so are all these costs reduced. So when you look at the balance between the government's paying in effect a part of your cost and you're getting the diminished returns by the same proportion, economists explain it's not going to change your decision to any significant extent. And the best statistical studies confirm this. And if you want an anecdote, uh, when we lower the tax, corporate tax from 35%, To the 21%, and you compounded that by all kinds of special provisions that accelerated depreciation, you should have had, according to the Republicans, a boom in investment. We didn't have that. This was 2017, December. We didn't have that. What we got was stock buybacks. We got it in in share buybacks almost a trillion dollars in one year that went to the pockets of the richest Americans. So the fact is we've, we've done our own little experiment here, but there's a lot of data uh, and theory behind it that raising the tax won't have uh, a negative, uh, the negative effects that have been predicted. Yeah. If you want my political forecast for what it's worth that I don't claim to have any, any real insight, uh, you'll get most of the uh, corporate tax revenue that Biden wants through increased enforcement, through cl- closing loopholes, and uh, a minimum tax, raising the minimum tax, uh, 21 20, uh five uh, percent and uh, then it may be possible to compromise from 28 to 25 percent. It's not the position I would advocate, but uh, I think uh, a lot of people in the corporate community would even uh, agree to that kind of of uh, action. You know, after all. Among corporate CEOs, there's a lot of anger that some of them are paying full freight while a lot of their colleagues are getting, getting off without paying any taxes at all. Uh, they think that's an unfair system. So they're as concerned as, as a lot of other Americans are that just because some companies are better at tax avoidance or have less social conscience um, is not a good thing for uh, the rest of our society.
0: Um, with these massive spending bills, there have been some calls for concern that we might be stoking inflation. Um, and there are some signs out there that, there, that inflation is uh, maybe beginning to be something to be a little concerned about more than we have been in the last several years. Do you think those concerns are misplaced? And if so, why? Um,
1: I think the excessive worry about that uh, is misplaced. Um, first, of all, let me say why I think it's really good for us to have a tight economy. We've had uh, an insufficiency of aggregate demand, you know, hidden uh, unemployment uh, for a long time. Uh, sometimes people talk about the uh, unemployment rate, but that doesn't really describe the real state of the labor market. One of the reasons wages haven't gone up is there's been really slack in the labor market. If you look at other indicia, like uh, the fraction of working age population that's actually working, it's remarkably low in the United States compared to our past and compared to other countries. Like 50 year lows. Only time in our history that we bring in marginalized groups into our economy, marginalized, I mean, you know, minorities, women, and begin to get, see a compression in wages between bottom and the top, is when we run a really tight labor market. So I'd like to see our, our economy to be a little tighter. And I think most Americans would like to see a, 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 the economy a little tighter. So I think that's a, a good thing. I hope we do get there. But the um, if if inflation starts to be a a problem, we have tools. But let me first say before I come to that, that we will see some prices going up right now. Price of oil is going up. Uh, There may be some um, uh, particular goods that get into scarcity. That that's going to you know, and people will notice that. prices of some housing is going up in some places, going down where I live. So uh, it's up and down. Uh, but the, the, uh, uh, overall, one of the reasons why there's not too much of risk of inflation is we have, live in a global economy in which we're coming out of this downturn first and strongest uh, with China. Um, That means there's a global excess supply and we can tap into that excess supply. One of the reasons why there's not been inflationary pressures for well over a quarter century is uh, of, of this supply from emerging markets. So that's another reason I'm not worried. But if it should turn out that there is this inflationary pressure uh, we can raise interest rates you know we've had close to zero interest rates now for a dozen years it's not good for the capital markets nobody really thinks this the right scarcity price of capital is zero and when you have low interest rates you get all kinds of distortions in capital markets including the pricing of risk and that makes us vulnerable to instability so i think it'd be better for the economy if we return to a more normal regime. And finally, we have fiscal policy, that we have a distorted tax system, for instance. Uh, Many people, I included, think we ought to have uh, environmental taxes. We ought to have more progressive uh, taxation in many different directions. Uh, We have a... Uh, those at the top pay lower taxes than those below. Um, we have lots of, you know, ta- technical issues like step up a basis, a lot of inequities and, and distortions in our tax system. And there's a hesitancy to address them as long as the economy remains weak. And if we got a strong economy, we would be able to begin to address these distortions in our tax system. And so I think we would have a more efficient and a fairer tax system. Uh, and I hope that that's one of the things down the line that we can, can do as the economy gets back to normal.
0: Yeah. Um, you mentioned the environment, uh, tomorrow's Earth Day. And I know that yesterday you testified before the Senate Budget Committee about the economic costs of, uh, of climate change in action. Um, for those of us who were at this conference yesterday, can you give us a uh, a precis of uh, of what you told the Senate?
1: Well, you 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 put the 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 main point that the cost of inaction is far greater than doing something, and uh, it was even stronger. What I said is that uh, dealing with climate change could be a real uh, opportunity for the economy. Um, it would stimulate innovation, uh, which would help increase our standards of living. Um, you know, the little encouragement that we've given over the last uh, 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 20 years, 15 years, has led to enormous innovation in renewable energy. So the, the price of energy is coming down, and it was projected to go way up. We're already the beneficiaries, and, and, and we see it in, in the savings as we get into housing that's more energy efficient, cars that are more energy efficient, and these electric cars will last a lot longer than the old uh, gasoline cars. So Many of these innovations will save money and if we're there first, what I try to suggest is it will redound to the benefit of the United States because what is our comparative advantage in the United States? I think one of our big sources of comparative advantage is innovation. And if we're up, you know if we're leading it, uh, we will be innovating in ways that will produce products that everybody in the world will
0: want.. Uh- you, you, you mentioned uh, the, the benefits to the United States. Uh, we spoke earlier today to Dembeza Zamoyo, who's talking about deglobalization and how harmful that is to international cooperation. And I think everybody accepts that international cooperation is going to be necessary if we're going to effectively fight uh, climate change. What are there any policy options available to us that would slow this process of sort of deglobalization and uh, and balkanization? You wrote a very influential book called Globalization and Its Discontents, in which you argued that the, the, the problem with globalization is not globalization per se, but the way that we were doing it up until that time. Um, what what should we be doing to, to create the right kind of globalization now?
1: Well, I think um, we are doing some of the things that we need to do. I think the world's become somewhat more complicated politically since I wrote that book. Yeah. Um, at the same time, on the positive side, I think we've made enormous amount of progress. Maybe partly because of my book and because of events. So let me just flesh out a couple of those points very briefly. Um, I think both the pandemic and climate change has made it clear we have to cooperate you know we share a planet uh, the greenhouse gas molecules co2 molecules don't have carry passports don't obey visas the same thing about the virus uh, these are things we have to deal collectively the same thing with dealing with the oceans and uh so forth so we recognize that and i'm pleased that uh Biden is working with the Chinese and dealing with climate change. That while we we've expressed our concerns about human rights and democracy, we can say, well, okay, uh, those are areas where we're going to be very vocal about our differences and views. There are some things where you have to work together. You know, I sometimes give an analogy: if you were on the Titanic and it was going down and you're on a lifeboat, there may be some people in that lifeboat who you really don't like, but you still are going to row row together uh, for safety. So uh, we we are uh, at risk. And I think it's really important for us to work together on those areas. Secondly, the international organizations have really, uh, and particularly the IMF, has really reformed a great deal, much of my earlier criticism and uh, they put the issues of inequality to the top. They've abandoned this focus on austerity. Um, they've, Or at least they've changed their perspective. Uh, uh, they've changed their perspectives on, on capital controls. Uh, very major change. Partly right now, uh, the head of it is somebody from an emerging market and identifies with emerging markets. But the change began under Christine Lagarde and under Strauss-Kahn. So, so this has been a p- slow process of change, but it's, it's a real process of change. And I think we, we have to recognize that. And this is a case where civil society, uh, open discussion has worked. Uh, these institutions learn. And I don't want to say the battle is over, but it's a con, It's I think it's a, at least a a, a a move in the in 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 the right direction. Um, the there's obviously going to be some rethinking of globalization. The process of deglobalization actually began uh, to a large extent after uh, the Great Recession, two thousand eight, and some of this has to do with the natural evolution of the economy. We're moving from manufacturing to a service sector economy and the service sector economy is more local. The manufacturing are global products. So some of it is the change in the composition of what we consume. And that's uh, uh, part of the story. Part of the story is we saw that we had Uh, the instability brought by excessive flows of short-term capital. And so that has uh, led to a re-examination of that. The pandemic itself showed a problem that a lot of people in the advanced countries are now worrying about, the lack of resilience of the private sector because the the global supply chains were insufficiently diversified and uh, fragile. So, you know, many Americans were shocked that we couldn't produce masks, that we couldn't produce simple products like protective gear, let alone complicated products like ventilators and tests. So there's a re-examination of how we can create more resilient uh, global supply chains. So uh, there's a lot going on in rethinking globalization right now, which entails both the need for more global cooperation, but also the need for having a resilient market economy.
0: Joe, I've been given liberty to go a couple minutes over, uh, so I'll get to one more question. Um, You mentioned several times inequality. I'm, 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 eager to hear what kind of policy measures in the United States you think are politically possible to reduce inequality, given that the effort to pass a $15 minimum wage seems to have stalled on Capitol Hill.
1: Well, I think one of the things that's going to be going on, uh, say, on that minimum wage is continuing efforts all over the country at the state, community, local level, right, and uh, that's what's been going on. Um, and in many of the other issues dealing with inequality, uh, it is an issue that uh, you know, I can tell you my students feel very, very strongly about. And I think most Americans feel very strongly about. At the national level, uh, I think, again, we began in our earlier conversation pointing out that while Congress is divided 50-50 almost, American people are not divided 50-50, and that there is a sense that this is a major problem. I mentioned before that COVID-19 both exposed and aggravated uh, these inequalities. So I think that uh, Biden is going to try to do a number of things, may not be able to do them in this Congress because the division is is too close. But there are some things that can be done through executive orders and there are some things that if we got a Congress that was not so divided might be able to be done. I mean, for instance, um, uh, one of the things that we we will probably be able to do through reconciliation, which is what we can do with a 50-50 Congress, is uh, correct some of the inequities of the tax system that were put there by Trump, um, where uh, the permanent tax cuts were all for the rich. The, it, it was one of the most dishonest pieces of legislation It was called a tax cut, but you looked at the details and uh, I wrote an article about it. You saw, you compare the taxes that they would have paid before with the taxes they paid. The bottom half of the population actually saw their taxes go up. So it wasn't a tax cut for most Americans, it was a tax cut for the billionaires. And those are issues that will be dealt with in, I I think, in in, uh, reconciliation. So you're gonna have some some work in in making our tax system more progressive um, and using some of that money to help at the bottom. The kind of proposal, what was done in the rescue package that reduced childhood poverty by 40%, that was one year. And that has to be a permanent. And I think in some of the proposals coming forward that can be put in reconciliation, that will uh, uh, they can get that done, even in this politically difficult time. But the other kinds of measures, um, like uh, increasing the bargaining power of workers, um, that's going to be more difficult. Uh, some of that, as I say, can be done Through executive orders related to government procurement, Um, and uh, so we sometimes underestimate the the tools the government has. Uh, You know, the first best measures are a straightforward legislation, but given the gerrymandering and the voter suppression, uh, that's those those measures are going to have to wait till a a change in Congress.
0: Well, Joe, thank you for your time and your insights and for uh, ending on a relatively upbeat, hopeful note. It's much appreciated.
1: Thank you. I actually thought he was echoing Tomaski
0: and your interview with him yesterday and the threat to democracy with some of those last comments (laughs) myself, but a shock. Dishonesty in the Trump administration, it's just shocking that that's possible.
1: Joe, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you.